Sholem Aleichem, welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I am visiting with Professor Devin Nahr. Devin Nahr is the Al-Hadef Professor in Sephardic Studies, Assistant Professor of History and Faculty at the Strom Center for Jewish Studies in the Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. Born and raised in New Jersey, Dr. Nahr graduated summa cum laude from Washington University in St. Louis and received his PhD in history at Stanford University. He recently published the book with Stanford University Press, Jewish Shalonika, Between the Ottoman Empire and Modern Greece, based on his prize-winning dissertation. It explores the impact of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the rise of modern Greece during the 19th and 20th centuries on the Jews of Salonika. Welcome, Devin. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And I may call you Devin since we've met here at the center, yes? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, full disclosure, you've, uh, you have presented one of our weekend programs, which we really, really enjoyed, um, as well as a, uh, an earlier podcast about your collecting. So your latest book explores Jewish Salonika, and it tells the story of the challenges the Jews wrestled with at the end of the Ottoman Empire. I was wondering if you can first share just a sort of a little bit about the history. Yeah, I mean, uh, Salonika was once home to really the largest Ladino-speaking Sephardic Jewish population in the entire world about a hundred years ago. And they were in some ways quite thriving in the context of the Ottoman Empire. Many of those families had been living there since their ancestors had arrived in the decades and centuries after the expulsion from Spain in 1492, and they had made a place for themselves, made a new home for themselves in the city of Salonika, which was uh, really a strategic port city at the crossroads of of Europe and and the Middle East in, in what is today's northern Greece, right on the Aegean Sea. And so the imprint that Jews left on that city was quite remarkable by the time we arrive at we arrived to the 20th century. Um, unlike in many other cities in Europe and elsewhere, Jews could be found in all social strata of society. Uh, you could uh, you entered the port and the stevedores dealing with the stuff you might be bringing in, they would be Jews. The customs agents were Jewish. The postal officers were Jewish. The doctors, lawyers, um, the uh, seamstresses, the tailors, the lemonade vendors, the pumpkin seed sellers, the um, tobacco workers, the prostitutes, Jews functioned in every aspect of uh, of Salonican society. And so that's sort of like a little bit of a portrait of that world on the eve of the 20th century. And that's a world that will be radically transformed uh, during the, the past century. And maybe we can jump into that conversation. So you had this thriving community, and what happened to that community? Well, I think that there are a couple major turning points that we could think about. The first one happens actually during the late, the final decades of the Ottoman uh, Ottoman Empire, in which the Ottoman state, much like other societies across Europe, are introducing what they understand to be modernizing reforms, introducing the ideas of citizenship and of nationalism. And this is happening in the Ottoman Empire, in the especially beginning in the 18. Uh, 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, and Jews in Salonika and other towns and cities in the Ottoman Empire are trying to adapt to the new ways of thinking about their place in society, not only as Jews 
who operate within their own discrete um, self-governing Jewish community, but also as possibly active citizens, active Ottoman citizens and patriots. And so what, what does that mean? The same questions that are asked in other parts of Europe mm-hmm. are now beginning to be asked in the Ottoman realm. Uh, the difference is, is that citizenship comes to Jews in the Ottoman Empire while they continue to be fully 100% part and parcel of their Jewish communities, which remain intact. So, in other words, like in some parts of Europe, for example, when Jews get the rights as, citizen, rights as citizens, they are no longer compulsorily obligated to be members of their Jewish community. So, like, being a member of the Jewish community becomes something you want to do or you choose to do. It becomes something you voluntarily uh, decide you want to be part of a Jewish community. But in the context of the Ottoman Empire, you, by law, become both a member of your Jewish community while also becoming a citizen of the Ottoman state. And so there, in that moment, there's introduced a very important and uh, ultimately unresolved tension between allegiance to the Jewish community and allegiance between this new uh, state that is that you're supposed to also understand as your homeland. And do you think that there is a um, a very unique legacy? Well, yes. I mean, I think I think that that is a unique legacy insofar as that tension um, continues even once Salonika becomes part of modern Greece. You know, modern Greece we think of or Greece we think of in our popular imagination, you know, it's the the place of Athens and, uh, you know, ancient Greek philosophy and the birthplace of democracy and the cradle of Western civilization. But um, in the 19th century, Athens was a tiny village filled with minarets. Uh, It was an Ottoman town, and Salonika was a a much more robust and vibrant city in many ways, but the legacies of that Ottoman world continue to be felt in modern Greece, including the way in which the state managed its minority populations. So even though Jews in Greece, they get the rights, they, 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 they get rights as citizens of Greece, very few countries today, although Israel is one of them, uh, which is there is a prohibition um, against civil marriage. So that means in Greece, unlike almost all the other European countries, uh, it is illegal for Jews to marry Christians, for example, till 1982. So that's a sort of a a tension that is at the heart, I think, of the place of Jews in modern Greek society and how uh, Jews in Greece think of themselves in relationship to their neighbors and and the state in which they live. So I gather in, in researching the book, you traveled to Salonika, Jerusalem, Moscow, to search out archives um, that had been confiscated by the Nazis and looking for source material, which I imagine was rich and to this point hadn't really been accessed that much. I wonder how did it inform the telling of the story for you and what what you discovered, what surprises or revelations? Well, the, the, the first surprise was that such archives existed and that they existed in such robust and vast uh, dimensions. Uh, when I began my research, I was sort of under the impression that the archives, uh, the pre-World War II archives of the Jewish community of Salonika had not only been confiscated by the Nazis, but mostly lost or destroyed. But through chasing down a uh, uh, the paper trail, looking at Greek government documents, uh, American military documents, 
and some other uh, resources that I had access to, I was able to find out that a lot of the archives from the Jewish community of Salonika had, had actually survived the war, and after the war had been dispersed all over the place. Some of the materials, as you alluded to, had actually been reconfiscated by the Soviet forces, which found some of the stuff in Germany, and then they were brought to Moscow, where they were locked away in what is now the former Soviet secret military archive, and the whereabouts and existence of those materials only became known in the last uh, you know, couple of decades. And some of the other materials from Salonika wound up being repatriated to uh, Greece, but because there were very, very few survivors in Salonika, Jewish survivors after the war, and in Salonika in particular, those materials largely went um, unattended to. And when I went to Salonika, this was now um, over 10 years ago, I went asking for these materials because I had evidence from the American military that a certain number of kilos, kilos of archival materials and books had been returned to, uh, to Greece and to the Jewish communities. And I went to the, the, the Jewish community leaders and I asked, you know, where are these materials? And they, they didn't really know. At the newly established Jewish Museum, there was a small stack of pre-war documents. And I was like, well, a small stack, that doesn't quite equal a few kilos of, um, uh, you know, of, uh, of materials. Right. And so uh, I asked further and further, and, and eventually I discovered that some of those materials had been uh, stuck in a basement closet of one of the old Jewish community buildings, and I actually went down there and dug the stuff out and transferred it to the Jewish Museum, and that became one of the main sources for my, for my book. Um, and as you can imagine, during the process of uncovering all of these materials, it was really quite remarkable because I got into it thinking I really wasn't going to come away with very much. And then in the end, I had way more material than I could have possibly ever used in one book, let alone, you know, there, there are many more dissertations and studies waiting to be written from these materials. Um, most of them are written in Ladino, in Judeo-Spanish, in Hebrew script, but there's also a lot of documentation in Greek, in Hebrew, in French, some things in Turkish, in German, Italian, even a document in Esperanto, one or two little jottings in Yiddish, and, uh, and a variety of other languages. So it was a really intense process of trying to go through these materials, not only trying to decode the languages mm -hmm. that they were all written in, but trying to figure out what materials went with what particular things, because it was like they had all been confiscated. So as if somebody had taken the records of the Jewish schools and the records of the, <clears throat> pardon me, of the Jewish hospital and of the rabbinic court, and they had sort of thrown them up in the air, and they landed in every which way. So I wound up spending a lot of my time in the beginning just trying to figure out what was what and uh, what these what the particular files uh, pertain to and try to re sort of reconstitute the, the, the provenance and the organization of the archive as it may have existed when it was still a living aspect of Jewish communal life before the war. Are you hopeful that these materials, certainly with the book, with your research, with, you know, a renewed interest, if we can say that, um, will be, you know, sort of find their way to, um, uh, you know, being preserved and archived yes. in a way uh, that they're more accessible? Yes, yes. So that was another step that, that I, I took uh, in partnership with the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. They have a, um, a very active international archival acquisitions team, and I work with them to uh, organize 
microfilm and digitize most of the segments of the pre-war archives of the Jewish community of Salonika, not only the piece in Moscow and the piece in Salonika itself that I mentioned, <clears throat> but also another segment of the archives that wound up in Jerusalem at the Central Archives for the History of the Jewish People, and another segment of the archives that actually wound up at the YIVO Institute for Jewish Research in New York. So now if you go to Washington, D.C., and this is, this is very exciting for me at least, you can virtually encounter all of the segments of the pre-war archives that have survived in one, in one location. So for future researchers, they won't have to go gallivanting across the globe as I had to to try to track these materials down, but they'll be able to sit down at a microfilm machine or on a, on a computer screen and access these materials. And I really do hope that happens because I think that um, the stories that can emerge from these archives and the stories that are told in the, in the language and in the words of Salonika's Jews themselves have largely been absent from the larger discussion of modern Jewish history. Mm -hmm. And I think they can really contribute some new perspectives about what the modern Jewish experience is beyond uh, you know, beyond Eastern and, and Central Europe, but dipping into the Mediterranean and into the Sephardic world of Ladino-speaking Jews. Yeah, I mean, it certainly fills out the, the larger narrative, as you say. And it's really interesting because you, um, just in terms of borders, there they are, sort of right next to each other. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I've written a, a, just an article right now that speaks about the permeable boundaries between Eastern Europe and the Mediterranean, between the Russian Empire and the Ottoman Empire. And what I discovered was that even in a place like Salonika, you had quite a number of uh, Ashkenazi Jews who uh, entered into that milieu. And um, you had quite a lot of uh, Yiddish uh, literature uh, translated into Ladino. And you had a number of important, <coughs> pardon me, important Ashkenazi Jews assume uh, leadership roles actually in the, in the Sephardic community of Salonika in, in modern times, which I think demonstrates that really these categories that we oftentimes take for granted as sort of discrete entities, the Sephardic world and the Ashkenazic world, the Yiddish-speaking world and the Ladino-speaking world, uh, we see in a place like Salonika, and there are many other examples like this, if we just look a little more closely, where those different communities and cultures and practices came together and forged new senses of identity and uh, new Jewish experiences in modern times. So, sort of returning to the subject of the book, all of which <laughs> this is part of, um, you address what's happening at the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Um, and I think you're looking to find out how the Jewish community was looking to address their legacy in yeah. terms of all of these different issues that we've been discussing. And I wonder if you can give us kind of a snapshot of how you see that that happened and played out. What I decided to do with this book was to try to pull out a few of the key themes that touch on this very question of how the how Jews in Salonika and the Jewish community as an official institution sought to address the, the impact of the end of the Ottoman Empire and modern Greece. So the, the chapters of my book are actually organized according to, to theme rather than sort of a chronological take, because what I noticed was that all throughout this period of discussion from the late 19th century until World War II, 
Jewish leaders and everyday Jews are preoccupied with a number of key questions about precisely this question of what their future will be, what their legacy will be, and what their place in the, in the city, in their state, in the broader Jewish world will be. So I, the first chapter, for example, deals with the question of community. I alluded to that a little bit before, which is, you know, what does, what does a Jewish community mean in, in modern times? And when uh, the Jewish community is, a, is actually a legal, uh, a le- legal requirement for Jews to participate in that community. I look then at the question of leadership. Um, what is the meaning of a rabbi, which we think of, okay, that's a traditional Jewish leader, but in this context of political transformation, is a rabbi someone to whom you address your, uh, your religious and your spiritual and halakhic questions, or does the rabbi become a political figure or a diplomatic figure? And I look at some of the debates over those questions. And another, just to give you one or two other examples of the other chapters, I then look at the question of youth, because the youth become very important for Jewish leaders in Salonika because they think that it's through the youth that they'll be able to uh, justify their position in, in Greece. In other words, the Jewish leaders uh, believe that it's the Jewish children through their education that will become the first fully authentic Greek Jews or Hellenic Jews, and that the older generations will in some ways have to follow the example of the youth. Um, and so those give, give you a couple ideas of some of the themes that I'm trying to deal with in the, in the book. Which you deal with so beautifully, and it's, it's really interesting to be exposed to this story, um, because it, it is something that I don't think we know as much about <laughs> as we need to, or it's just it, it's an interesting chapter. Chapters. Yeah, and I, I yeah, hope yeah, so. I'm yeah, happy yeah, to hear that. Yes. <laughs> um, so again, the book is Jewish Salonika between the Ottoman Empire and modern Greece. It's available. Um, do you have a website anywhere that people can go to? Yeah, you could. You, people could visit my website devonnar.com, mm-hmm. or they could go to the uh, University of Washington's um, Sephardic Studies uh, homepage. If you just type in Sephardic Studies University of Washington on Google, you'll get there. Great. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us for the book and My for all you. of your work, um, really telling these important stories and preserving them and digitizing them and all of the other hard work you're doing. So thank thanks. Thank you very much. Lovely to visit I with really appreciate you. appreciate it. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To learn more about this podcast and to subscribe, visit our website, yiddishbookcenter.org. This episode is produced by me, Alexa Sewing. And until next time, be well and be healthy.